Some of you guys are totally thrown off right now because we've been doing worship the same way for so many years. You're, you, just, you can't even handle a message this early. But I think today is a day we're supposed to shake things up a bit because God wants the rest of worship to be a response to God's word, not, not just preparation for God's word. So we're going we're gonna to dive right into Luke chapter 11. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you are not familiar with the Bible, maybe you're watching online, you're not sure about church yet, you're here, it's the first few times you've been here, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. We're going to be in the New Testament. That's the back third of the Bible. The first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11, so third book of the New Testament. Before we dive in, though, to that passage, I, I want to tell you, just in case you didn't see the email that I sent out this past week about what took place on Easter Sunday. I know there were many of you who were here, and we opened it up for baptisms. Those of you who were in this room who were part of it or watched online, uh, you saw God just move in a profound way, a, a way that blew me away on how God responded. Uh, you, what you didn't see, though, is uh, even after we stopped the service in this room, we still had 12 more baptisms that took place. We had baptisms at all of our services. Uh, it was just phenomenal. We had two people who were watching online. So if you're watching online, keep this in mind. They drove 15 minutes to get over here to be baptized that morning, which was just phenomenal. And then on our Wednesday night prayer gathering, I had, I had just sensed that we were going to see even more baptisms take place. And a brother walks up with his phone, and he's got uh, two videos from Venezuela with people who had the Cristo en mi lugar shirt, Jesus in my place shirt, getting baptized in a lake in Venezuela because they watched our Spanish service online. <laughs> Just one of those, you're going, okay, God, you're, you're moving. Not, not including the two baptisms at our sister church in Venezuela, we had 67 people baptized in one day on, on Easter Sunday. 67 in, in one day. Now, guys, I'm... I know it's not about attaining a number, but let me go and tell you, every single one of those numbers, 67, is a person who has declared their faith publicly in Jesus Christ, the vast majority of whom came not expecting that. They just said, I want Jesus, I need Jesus, and I'm ready to take that bold step of faith. I have never in my life seen anything like that take place. I was not prepared for it. We had counselors beyond number, and we still didn't have enough counselors because God was moving. I was praying my brains out that God would do a miracle and let us see 25 people get baptized on Easter Sunday. And, and I think the Lord was just saying, no, it's great. It's cute. I want you to keep praying. <laughs> and he said, now let me show you what I can do because I can do beyond all you can ask or even imagine. But here's what's even greater than that. So over the last month, actually less than a month, we have seen 101 people baptized in four weeks. I, I am I'm blown away by this because you, you do realize that this is one of the things that made me the most timid about doing a baptism, a live baptism on Easter Sunday. We just had three weeks before that a baptism celebration at the Levitt Pavilion where 33 people were baptized. And so I just thought, well, you know, all the people who were ready to take that step of faith have already taken it. And then Sunday comes and God moves in ways I can't imagine. Then on Tuesday night, a young lady decides she needs to get baptized at the college ministry. She finds a swimming pool here in Arlington. They, get, they have another baptism take place on Tuesday night. Because God is just moving, which is also why I believe God's not done. There are some of you in this room, and you don't realize it, but by the time the service is over, God is calling you to take a bold step forward and get baptized this morning. You just, you just got to get your heart ready for it. I, I just think God's not done. And it really doesn't even matter what I say. If the Spirit's calling you and pursuing you, you're going to have to respond sooner or later. You might as well do it today. But I think God is just moving in ways that we hadn't, hadn't seen before. But the reason why, make no mistake about it, 
It's not because we've gotten a whole lot better with our strategy here. It's not like we did some kind of huge campaign. We went door to door to 5,000 homes or passed out Bibles or I got any better at preaching. Like none of that's changed. We, we, didn't, we haven't changed our message. We haven't changed anything. There's only one thing that's changed. We started gathering together on Wednesday nights to pray and ask God to move. I don't, I don't know if you remember this. I took the time to go to every single service in both languages to share a, a number of weeks ago, uh, a few months ago, that God was calling us to gather together on Wednesday nights and to pray. And, and I, I confess to you guys, this was not my plan to start so soon. I was really looking to the fall because I thought this would be a good time. We can get all our ducks in a row. We can really come in hard and start praying together. And I felt like the Lord saying, I, I've, I've already told you, Jason, I've already told you, church, that I'm ready to pour out my blessings like you haven't seen before when you start praying like you've never prayed before. And I felt like the Lord saying, why are you waiting to the fall to start gathering together to pray? And I, I told you already, okay, summertime, God, we can finish everything we got Wednesday night, the normal semester activity, start in the summertime. And I felt like the Lord saying, don't wait. And so then I knew we were going to have this sermon series coming the Sunday after Easter. I said, okay, well, we'll just start talking about prayer and then start joining together in prayer right after Easter. And immediately felt the Spirit saying, why are you waiting until after Easter to start gathering together to pray? As so the Lord was saying, I want to do something and I'll do it the moment you start gathering together to pray. And so we started for six weeks during the Lenten season. And over those six weeks, we saw 101 people baptized. It's like God said, I just want you to see this. When my church gathers together to pray, I move. And there is no credit any person can take when it comes through prayer, except for Almighty God. This is what God is showing us. God is showing us that when we gather together to pray, like we've never prayed before, we'll see a move of God like we've never seen before. So I'm as expectant as I've ever been of how God is moving right now. But the one thought that keeps rolling around in my head is that if this is what God does when a few hundred people at all of our campuses gather together to pray, what's he going to do when a few thousand people gather together and pray? Like, God, what, what kind of move are we going to see? What kind of revival are we going to experience when the mass comes together and says, we're going to cry out to Almighty God to see him move? I believe God is saying, I'm ready to show you things you have never seen before if my church will just gather together to pray. And I honestly believe there are many of you who are part of this church and you want to see a move of God. And, and, and you even believe that God can move. You, you believe that when people pray, God's heart is stirred. And it's not that you don't have the time to come on Wednesday nights. You, you can make the time. You, you could be here. That's not what's stopping you. It's not schedule. It's probably not even desire. I mean, you, you want to see God move. You want to be a part of the movement of God. But I think the number one thing that's stopping people from gathering together to pray is that most people feel like they don't know how to pray. Like, I'm just, I'm just not good at it. I would go, but I wouldn't know what I'm doing. I've, I've tried prayer before, and I don't seem to be very effective at it, and I just think I'd be taking up a chair. I don't, I don't know how to pray. Listen, if that's what's stopping you from gathering together to pray with us as a church, I, I don't want you to feel bad about it. I just want you to hear some good news. Jesus' own disciples felt that exact same way. They felt like they didn't know how to pray which is why they do, they, they ask Jesus for what they asked him in Luke chapter 11. So hopefully you have your Bible open to Luke 11, 1 right now. now I want to read just this one verse. Here's what it says. It says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. He's praying. The disciples experience the prayer time of Jesus, and the, thing that, the one thing that pops into their mind to ask him is to say, Jesus, teach us to pray. I see something in you that I want. Teach us to pray. I, I don't know about you, but if I had some time with Jesus 
and I could ask him to do anything, I hope this is the one thing I would ask. Jesus, teach me to pray. I, not like, how do you reconcile this theological? I, I, I don't need to have, I want Jesus, teach me how to pray. You don't have to answer all my questions. Teach me to pray because I know that if I could learn to pray like Jesus, I'd see the miracles of Almighty God. If we were wise, we would ask Jesus the same thing. And, and I think every one of you in this room knows that prayer is important. I, I don't think I have to teach you that aspect of it. Prayer can almost become instinctual, especially when we're going through a crisis. That's when people who don't normally pray start praying. Because we know that there's access to power that we don't presently have that comes through prayer. But at the same time, the vast majority of us feel incredibly inept when it comes to prayer. In fact, I'll bet you for about 97 to 98% of you in this room, the worst possible thing I could ever do for you, the thing that would cause you to run out of here screaming, would be for me to walk up to you, tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, I want you to come up on the stage and I want you to dismiss us all with a public prayer. You'd be like a fainting goat on the way up here, just poof, you just turn over. It'd be over. You, you, right now, your pits are sweating just thinking about it. Because the only thing that, that runs into your mind is like, oh, dude, I would screw that up so bad. Stumble and fumble my words. I'd lose my train of thought. I'd sound totally ignorant. I, I just, there's no way I could do it. And you feel that sense of like, I'm just not good at prayer, especially out loud. I, mm -mm, that's beyond me. We don't feel good at prayer. And I think one of the main things driving this feeling that we have is just really false beliefs about prayer. One of the chief false beliefs about prayer is that it's a spiritual gifting that some people have and some people don't. Like we're not all Clyde Hodson, we just can't pray like him. I, 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 wish, I wish I was born with a gift that he has just to commune with the Father, the bat line right to God, but I wasn't born with it, so you know I'm just not good at prayer. As if like some people are born with it, some aren't. And that is a false belief. It is a lie from the enemy himself. There are others of you, and, and your, your false belief is that you just don't know the right words to say. Like you don't know enough scripture to quote when you're praying, and your words wouldn't sound deep enough, and you just, like it's not, you're just not good at speech, and therefore you're not good at prayer. It's a false belief that somehow you have to be good with words in order to be good at prayer. Well, there's some of you, you're going, you know, the biggest issue is I don't even know what to ask for. I, I never do. I always feel inept at prayer because what if I ask for the wrong thing and either, either God ignores me at, at best or gets angry at me at worst for asking for the wrong thing. It's best I just stay in my lane over here. I just let God do his thing. Actually, it's not just those people who don't feel good with theology who struggle to pray. Some of you, it's, it's some of you who know the most theology that struggle to pray. It is some of you who have the highest view of God that struggle to pray the most because you know God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. You can even name all the omnis of God. You are acutely aware that he's majestic and beyond you. And so you come to the point of going, why should I even pray? He already knows what he's doing. He doesn't need my suggestion. In fact, I want you to flip over to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. We're actually going to spend the majority of our time this morning in Matthew chapter 6. So go ahead and open it up in your phone or in your Bible. To Matthew chapter 6. I want to read verses 7 and 8 for you. And I want you to see what it says about God as we approach him in prayer. It'll tell you something that can sometimes make prayer feel almost pointless if you're not careful. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 7, says this. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father already knows what you need before you even ask him. Well, this just begs the question, 
then why in the world do we pray? I mean, he already knows what we need before we even ask him. Doesn't it seem kind of pointless to pray? I mean, if God is really omnipotent and omniscient, he already knows all this stuff, why do I need to give him any suggestions? It'd be like me, a pastor, going up to a heart surgeon in the middle of surgery going, "Uh, sir, you you need to cut across a little more diagonally. You know, I I have no business telling a heart surgeon how to do surgery. He, He knows what he's doing. He doesn't need my suggestions. And this is the way we feel about God. God knows what he's doing. He doesn't need my suggestions. He already knows what I need. Why would I even waste my time trying to ask him? I wouldn't know what to ask him for anyway. Which you gotta wrestle with that. Like that's, that's true. God knows what he's doing. And yet it is undeniable if you read the Bible, there are hundreds and hundreds of commands for us to pray. In these two, we have to try to synchronize. We have to bring together and, and meld the fact that God knows what we need before we even ask, and yet he still tells us to ask. So how do we pull these two together? Well, the answer to that, we have to, we have to come up to about 30,000 feet and really look at prayer and try to define it. So you saw the, the video beforehand. It says, prayer is dot, dot, dot. What I want to do over the next six weeks is to define for you what prayer is. Because what my fear is, is there are many of you who would not have a good definition. I, I almost did this. I was, uh, I was counseled against it to give every one of you a sheet of paper that said prayer is and have you fill out the blank. And then I was, I was told, and I believe rightfully so, that that probably wouldn't bode well for you or me to try to do that. Because we'd have hundreds of different definitions of what prayer is. And I don't know how biblically our answers would be. I think we don't have a firm grasp on even defining what prayer is. But I can definitely tell you what our actions show we believe about prayer. Because I hear prayer all the time. And if I were to tell you what our actions show about prayer... We believe that prayer is the act by which we get God to do what we think is best. Now, none of us are dumb enough to actually say that out loud because we, we, we can hear how presumptuous that sounds, to tell God to do what we think is best. But the way we view prayer, the way we act about prayer is we, generally speaking, approach prayer as the act by which I try to get God to do what I think is best. I, I tell him what to do. I mean, if you don't believe me, just try to recount the last however many 20, 30 prayers you've lifted up other than rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, you know, you're thanking God for the food, the vast majority of your prayers are for things that you want. Like, God, I just, I didn't study at all for this test. I need you to help me pass this test right now. Lord, I would love for that girl to go out with me if you just get her to say yes, Lord. Lord, I promise I'll tie 10% off this lotto ticket. If I win, just let me win, King Jesus. You know you do that. You just, Lord, all glory to you. Or, you know, I'm tired of being sick, heal me. I'm tired of this addiction, rescue me. God, I, I need money, provide for me. The, the way we view prayer, look at your prayers, the vast majority are about me. Like if I just want to convince you to do what I think is best. And even for those of you who are like spiritual enough to pray for somebody else, look at those prayers. Oftentimes you'll find out how self-serving even those are. Lord, I want you to heal my loved one. Why? Because it pains me to see them hurt. God, I I want you to provide for this person. Why? Because I don't want them to be a burden on me. God, I I want you to bring vengeance upon that person because they've wronged me. I want you to change that person because they could be better. Even the way we pray for other people oftentimes ends up being selfish. And our prayer just boils down to this fact that we're just trying to get God to do what we want him to do, what we think is best. And we wonder why our prayers aren't answered. Because we think we can control God as we pray. But I want to tell you, probably the chief reason why we struggle to pray 
is actually the very thing I just mentioned. It's unanswered prayer. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing it would be the majority of us. How many have prayed for something, desperately longed for something, and God didn't do it? And how deflating is it when we cry out to God and we pray and we feel nothing, no answer, like our prayers are just hitting the ceiling and bouncing around. They're doing no good. This is when we start to feel inept at prayer. Like, I'm trying, I'm asking, God's not responding. Or there are some of you who, when you pray, it feels like God almost does the opposite. Like, I asked you to do this. I'm almost afraid to pray because you might, like, smite me, God, by doing the exact opposite of what I ask for. We don't feel answers to prayer, and it, it discourages us, so we just don't pray. And every once in a while, we meet somebody that when they pray, it just seems like heaven bends in to listen. Every once in a while, we meet people that when they pray, it's like they get answers. I remember I was at the airport. Our, our, we had a team of seniors who were about to go over to Central Asia. And we got there at the airport, and there were 11 of us trying to get on a plane. And as soon as we got there, we heard our flight had been canceled. And so we were trying to figure out a different way to get there because the, the next flight that, was, that we were supposed to get on wasn't going to happen for another four days. And so we were going to miss over half the trip. And then we found out there was enough for seven people of the 11 to make it to Chicago and then over to get where we needed to get to. And so we were gathering together to pray, trying to make some decisions. And then one of the moms stepped up and she prayed. And I want to tell you, she prayed with boldness. And this lady said, I thank you, God, that all 11 of them are going to make it to Chicago tonight and make it over to Central Asia the next day. And I was like, all right, well, let me see if this lady's a false prophet or not because she has just declared it. <laughs> and within 30 minutes, all 11 of us had tickets and we were getting on, passing through security to get on an airplane and we made it. Right. And my first thought was, I need this lady on my prayer team because that girl has got some kind of line to Almighty God. I saw that, and I saw power when she prayed. And I got to tell you, I wanted it. It's like, I want to learn how to pray like that. I mean, that happens to us every once in a while. We see somebody who prays, and things seem to happen, and we go, I want some of that. This is exactly what happened to Jesus' disciples. He says in verse, 11, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 11 of Luke, right after he finished praying, they said, teach us to pray. Because they could hear the difference. When Jesus prayed, man, lepers were healed. When Jesus prayed, Two fish and five loaves fed 5,000 people. When Jesus prayed, like the whole universe seemed to change and God seemed to listen. And they're going, teach us to pray. I want to be like you. And here's the best thing of all. Jesus said, okay, I'll teach you to pray. He gave in to their request. Now that, that tells us two things that are worth remembering. The fact that Jesus said, okay, I'll teach you to pray. First thing it tells us is that Jesus honors the heart of a person who wants to learn how to pray. So if you're here this morning and you're telling me you're not good at prayer, if you're listening to this message and you're saying, I, I'm not good, but I want to learn, Jesus will honor that request. He will move so that you can learn to pray, so that you're better. And it doesn't matter if you've been a believer for five days, five years, or 50 years. All of us have the ability to learn and grow, which leads to the second thing. Every single one of us can learn how to pray, or Jesus wouldn't have said, I'll teach you. There is no gifted group that they know how to pray, and then the rest of us don't know how to pray. You're not born with it. You're taught it. You can learn how to pray. All of us can become prayer warriors if we'll just go on the journey of learning, or Jesus wouldn't have taught them. And I think that God wants to teach us how to pray. All he's asking for us is hungry hearts. And so for this sermon series, what we're going to do is we're going to let Jesus teach us how to pray bit by bit. And what we're going to do is we're going to sit at the feet of Jesus' teaching. What he gave them in answer to that back in Luke 11 was what's called the Lord's Prayer. 
Now, we could read the Luke account, but it's a little bit shorter of a version. Matthew chapter 6 actually has a longer version of his answer. So I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 6, and I want you to read with me the Lord's Prayer and see what it says, because this is Jesus' answer. When they see him pray and they're going, I want to learn how to pray, he says, okay, I'll tell you. And it's Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Can I, I want you to stop right there for a moment. How many of you have heard this prayer before, the Lord's Prayer? Raise your hand. Okay, I figured that'd be the majority. I can't see your hand online, but I know you got your hand up. Okay, now here's my next question. How many of you have memorized this prayer? Raise your hand. Oh, dang, that's more than I thought would have it. That's a ton of you. You probably, you probably learned the King James Version, though. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. That is it. You could quote it with me. We know this because this prayer is just all over the place. So many of us have learned it. I grew up in Red Oak, Texas. And in Red Oak, like even before games, oh, I got some Red Oak people over here. Rock on. <laughs> the Reese's over here, man. They got me. But I want you to know, even before games, we would get down and we would recite in a public school the Lord's Prayer. And it was almost like Tim Tebow, you know, like, okay, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May I hit thy home run. And, you know, it was, it was just one of those things that you did because it was like it almost gave you extra power, you know, if you could recite it. Like it was some kind of magical incantation. And for the majority of us, that's the way we treated the Lord's Prayer. And we've completely missed Jesus' point. He's not trying to give us a magical incantation that if we just memorize and recite whenever we need something, God's forced to move. What he's doing in this prayer is he's giving us meta-themes, understanding the basic ideas, the, the foundations of what prayer is. And so for the next six weeks, we're just going to take these themes and break them down and look at them one by one. They're, they're not in sequential order. You're going to see we're going to take them out of order because it, it's not one has to follow the other except for the first one. The first theme has to be first. And it's the first four words that he says. He says, our Father in heaven. You have to start all the time that we approach God with this basic understanding of our Father in heaven. Now, I, I know you guys, if you've been at church for any length of time, even if it's just a few weeks, especially if you've been in church for years, you have no trouble whatsoever calling God Father. You, you were, many of you born and raised with that idea, Father God is what you pray, you, you know that we can call him father, he's the good father, all that you're acutely aware of. But the Jewish people would have been shocked by Jesus saying, let's call him our father. Because they did not call Yahweh father. In fact, back then, the Jews were scared to death to even mention the name Yahweh, lest they take the name in vain. So instead of saying his name, they would call him Hashem, which in Hebrew just means the name. They would say, Hashem, we ask that you would come and show yourself. Hashem, we ask. So they're saying, the name, we ask that you would move upon us. The name, we ask that you would come be with us. The name, the name, Hashem. Because they didn't want to accidentally use the name of God wrongly. He was that majestic, that holy, that transcendent. They had a supremely high view of God. But they felt like God was distant. He wasn't close and personal. He's behind the veil. He's, he's behind the wall. He's, he's over there. We're out here. And we got to keep our distance from God or we might die. And so the whole idea of, of naming him our father would have been almost, almost blasphemous to them. And, and here's the deal, guys. I know we can say father, but practically speaking, the vast majority of us still treat God that way. We have a high view of God. He's the creator of the universe. We believe he exists. We believe he's above us. But he's away from us, 
and we're over here. He's in heaven, we're down here on earth. He's the CEO of the corporation, we're the janitor. And, and the janitor ain't got no business trying to tell the CEO what to do or even bother him. You know, let's let him do his thing. And so we treat God as distant. Now, now we get that Jesus, he, he has a different relationship with the Father. Of course, he can call him Father because he's the only begotten Son of God. It's his right to call the Father, Father. But where do we get off having that kind of intimate relationship with him? Until Jesus says, no, 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 no. When you pray, pray this way. Call him our Father. And the moment Jesus says our Father, what he's doing is he's inviting us into his position. And he's saying, I want you to call him Daddy the same way I call him Daddy. I, I want you to come into the place where you experience my position. He's inviting us into the most intimate of relationships with Almighty God. Now that theology will blow your brain up. And we need the Apostle Paul to help us understand what's going on. So I want you to flip over to the book of Galatians. It's a, it's a little bit later on in the Bible, Galatians chapter 4. And I want you to read with me verses 4 through 7. You, the words will be up on the screen in a moment. But I, I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul says as he gives us a theology of why we get to call him Daddy. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 4, says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He says we have the spirit of Christ that comes into us. We are now united with Christ and we are no longer a janitor. We're now a son. We're no longer on the sidelines. We now get to come in the privileged position. We got an office right next to Almighty God, the CEO of the universe. And he says we're inheritors of this business. And we have the right to come before Almighty God. He has invited us through this adoption into the right and privilege of walking up to Almighty God and saying, hey, Daddy, how are you doing? Now, I want to pause right there because I just said something that I'm afraid if you're not careful, you can mishear what I said. And, and if you mishear what I say, it can actually turn you into a spoiled little brat child before Almighty God. H have you ever been to a grocery store and you see someone else's kid and they're just like spoiled rotten? You just want to walk up and whoop, pow, slap the kid across the face? Because they're just making demands and controlling everything. Like it's so annoying to see a spoiled, rotten kid. And yet we can so easily become spoiled, rotten kids before Almighty God if we misunderstand what I just said. I said we have the right and privilege to go before Almighty God as his child. And what I want to make sure you understand is we have not earned that right and privilege. The moment you think you've earned that right and privilege, you think you can go before God and start making demands. It goes back to what I said earlier. We go before God, and, and the way we practice prayer is I'm trying to convince God to do what I think is best. And prayer becomes the act by which I try to get God on my side. And I start making demands of God. Now, we know that's presumptuous to say, but we do it. Because there are so many of us that think, because I go to church, God, because I give some money, because I volunteer in the children's ministry now, because a few weeks ago you guilted me into it, Jason, because now... I'm doing the things I'm supposed to be doing. I help the homeless people when I see them because I don't cuss anymore, because I don't listen to rap music anymore, because I don't watch pornography anymore, because I don't, you fill in the blank right there, because I'm changing my ways, God. It just got quiet. <laughs> because we're changing our ways, no longer, no longer do we have to wait for God to answer. He must answer us. And we look at that and we start to make demands of God because we think we have we have earned the right and privilege. So let me make sure you hear this as clearly as possible. You make no demands of God because you have not earned that privilege. 
I want you to turn over one page in your Bible from Galatians over to Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to listen to what it says here. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3 tells you your right and privilege. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Translation, you are screwed up, and you can make no demands of Almighty God. Your right and privilege is the wrath of Almighty God, and so is mine. That's our right and privilege. Let me tell you the good news, verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no hope, children of wrath. But God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die. And when we place our faith in Christ Jesus, we are raised up with Christ and we are seated in the heavenly places. It says, in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ. Let me tell you where Christ is right now. He is ascended up from this earth. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we are in Christ Jesus. And we turn to our left, looking at the Father, and we say, Daddy, Daddy. Abba, Dada, you're the one that I love. I am now in Christ Jesus. The Father turns and he sees us and he sees his beloved son. Us, his child, because we are in Christ Jesus. Now it's going to become important later on in the sermon series as we talk about why we can approach God with power because we're seated with Christ at the right hand of, of God, the, the side of power. I'll talk more about that later in future sermons. But right now what you need to understand is this. You and I do not deserve the privilege to sit next to the Father and call him Daddy. We should never take that for granted, never assume we deserve that. But we should never forget we've been given that privilege. The work of Jesus Christ, when we place our faith in him, has given us the privilege of being at the right hand of the Father, of getting the one thing that can satisfy us, Almighty God himself. And because of that privilege, we should turn to him again and again and again. Now, there's one thing I'm about to tell you is the most important thing I will tell you in the whole six weeks as we go through this sermon series. So if you haven't written anything down, get your phone out, get your notepad, you're out, record this, write this somewhere, take a picture of this. I, I, if you don't hear anything I say, this is the one truth that I think can most revolutionize your prayer. The one thing that can make the greatest difference. Here's what it is. The real reward of prayer is not getting more from God. It is getting more of God. I want you to write that down. The real reward of prayer is not getting more from God. It's not, it's not answers to your prayer. It's not getting the things that you want. The real reward of prayer isn't getting more from God. It is getting more of God himself. Because the only thing that can satisfy you is God himself. And every other pursuit will leave you hungry for more. The greatest treasure we have is God. And the real reward of prayer is getting more of God. And that's what he offers to you when we pray. And I, I, think, I think you and I look at what satisfies us completely wrong. And you can tell just by the way we think about heaven. There's so many of us when we think about heaven, we think heaven is going to be, more for men, a, a harem of women or whatever we want. There's that idea of heaven. Or for some of you people out there, it's, it's a manicured golf course. You can just go play golf your whole life. 
Some of you have this idea as these cherubs shooting arrows at each other, bouncing around on clouds. Some of you, it's this idea that your body's going to finally be perfect. You're going to have everything you ever wanted. You're going to eat whatever you want, not gain a pound, whatever. It's just the best life, whatever you've dreamed of in this life happening in heaven, that's going to be heaven. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but that's not heaven. Heaven is so much better than that. Heaven is the unfiltered, unencumbered, unthwarted presence of Almighty God. That you're going to be before Almighty God and you're not going to have sin as a barrier any longer keeping you away from Almighty God. You're going to get to experience him completely and your heart will be so overwhelmed with satisfaction for the rest of your life you'll be praising Almighty God and it won't be enough. And every time you pray, you get a little slice of heaven here on earth because your prayer is your ability to be with Almighty God. So every week we're going to give you themes of what prayer is. And I want you to understand this. Prayer is... Here's the first one, intimacy with the Father. Write that down. Prayer is intimacy with the Father. Every week, I'm going to tell you, prayer is, and fill it out for you. But prayer, at its core, at its essence, is the means by which you enter into relationship, that you, you have intimacy with the Father himself, where you gain that reward that your heart most longs for and most needs. I just don't think you and I tend to view prayer as intimacy with the Father. Like I said before, most of us view prayer as the means by which we get God to do what we think is best. Which is the reason why I believe so many of us feel like prayer is boring. If I were to tell you to go on your own right now and go pray for an hour, most of you would be like, holy cajoles, what would I even do after minute number two? I, 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 I wouldn't, I'd run out of things to ask for because you think prayer is going before God and asking for all the things that I think I need God to do. And what we don't realize, because we view prayer this way, is we turn prayer into talking at God instead of talking with God. Those of you who are married, I, I want you to do a little one-month experiment. I want you to turn over to your spouse, and for the next month, every single day, I want you only to talk at them. I want you just to tell them all the things they need to do for you, and then just walk away. <laughs> we have a ministry called Reengage that'll be excellent for you when that month is over, <laughs> where you can get your marriage restored, because you're going to need it, because your marriage will tank after one month, of approaching your spouse and just telling them what you need and walking off. No relationship can survive that. And yet this is exactly what we do with God. We go before Almighty God. We go, here's my list. Boom, 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 boom. Check it. Peace. I'm off. We rush through prayer because we got these other things to do that really matter. And I know I'm supposed to pray. So let me get them all out there. Done. Off I go. And we wonder why prayer stinks why there's no reward for it, why there's no power in it, why we feel so empty, why it doesn't seem to be delightful. Because we're looking at prayer completely wrong. But when we view prayer, not as the means by which we get what we want from God, but by getting God itself, all of a sudden prayer becomes the reward. Because prayer is the means by which I gain intimacy with the thing that satisfies my heart. The very act of prayer is my delight, not what God gives me because of my prayer. Listen, that truth, I promise you, will revolutionize the way that you view how you pray. It has changed my life. In fact, I, I'm about to tell you just a real brief example of what this done for me. The band's going to come back out. They're going to get set up because we're going to respond to this truth in just a moment. But here's, here's what I want you to hear. When I, when I finally began, it was about a year ago, to view prayer not as getting stuff from God but getting more of God, it made me want to pray more than I have ever prayed in my life. Over this last year, I have prayed more than I have ever prayed before any other year of my life. And I don't say that to brag. I say that because it has been my delight because I've finally come to understand a bit more of what prayer is. Prayer is me getting more of God. And now every single morning, 
I want to get up and I want to spend time with Almighty God. And it is never enough for me. I have this place in, in my, right on my back door. We screened in a little area. It's a very, very thin area. There are a couple of chairs, though. And I go sit every morning I can in the same chair. And I get my journal out and I pray. And I'll pray anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour or an hour more. And I'm just sitting there with the Lord. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just pondering the scriptures. I'm thinking about him. Sometimes I'm just sitting there being with him. And I won't say a word for 20 minutes. And I'm just so filled because I'm, I'm with the presence of Almighty God. It, it, it reminds me of growing up, what I would do with my dad. We would go in the backyard, and for an hour, we would just play catch. And sometimes we wouldn't say a word for the whole hour. But I walked out, and I felt so connected with my dad because I just spent time with him. That's all I needed. It's the same way it is with God. When I'm just sitting there, I'm not, I'm not forced, like, okay, i got to think of something real flowery to say to God, or i got to make this special. Just being with God is special, and it's never enough. I always leave hungry for more. And the greatest part about it is the more I've approached prayer this way, not getting stuff from God, the more I've seen God do. Because when I need to ask for something, he'll prompt me to ask for it, and I ask for it, and I see God move. And God is moving more than I've ever seen him move because he just loves it when our hearts delight in him. And he wants you to enter into that delight. So this is why we brought the sermon up to the front of the, the worship service. Because I want you to learn how to delight in Almighty God. His presence is a gift that you can open as often as you want it. Prayer is the means by which you open that gift. I can almost imagine a gift right there where I do my quiet time every single morning. And I just go there and as I pray, I get to open that gift. And every single morning, it's the same gift. And I love it more and more each time I go. And you guys and I, we have the privilege of approaching Almighty God anytime we want to and opening that gift and experiencing the one thing that can satisfy us. And this morning, I want us to desire Almighty God. We're going to sing a song. It says, nothing else. That's the name of the song. And it says, I'm sorry, God, when I've come with my agenda. I'm sorry when I've just mindlessly sang another song, God. Nothing else can satisfy me but you. But I don't want you to sing the song mindlessly. In fact, I don't want you to sing it at all if your heart can't really say it. At the end of this song, I'm going to lead us as we take the Lord's Supper. So if you don't have the Lord's Supper elements, you can get them in one of the baskets when you walked in. You'll have a chance to go over there and get it. But the Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus is the only thing that can satisfy us. His body is true food. His blood is true drink. Jesus told us that in John 6. But I don't want you to take the elements. I don't want you to sing the song if it's not true of your heart. I want you to come to a place where you're saying, really, legitimately, I believe it, God. Nothing can satisfy me but you. And I'm ready to celebrate that. So that's you. I, I want all of you to stand up right now in this room. I want you to get your heart ready. I want you to sing this song. Get yourself ready to take the Lord's Supper. If you need to get on your face before God, turn around your seat. If you want to just come down here and bow down at the steps because you want, to, you want to say, God, I'm sorry that I haven't made you the priority, then you do it. You respond as you need to. And when this song is over, I'll, I'll lead us as we take the Lord's Supper. Respond to him.